Well, friends, life at times can be really troubling. I know that for most of you, you've faced some disheartening circumstances in the last few months, some of you within the last week. We've had trouble finding jobs, cars have broken down, relationships are in the midst of conflict, school is overwhelming. Some of us have have experienced spiritual trials. Some of us have... Things just haven't panned out like we've expected. And for some of us, even hopes and dreams have been crushed. This is a very difficult time. I know myself included, this has been a trying time. And when we face times like these, it's easy to become discouraged. And if we're not careful, that discouragement leads to doubt. And before we know it, that doubt is swallowed up by unbelief. It's not an uncommon thing for people when they face hard times to begin to question God. God, why, why are you letting this happen to me? Why am I facing this pain? Why am I having to endure this difficulty? If you are a good God... If you are a gracious God who can do all things, why don't you relieve me from this? Why don't you take this from me? Don't you care? Are you even there? Things like, troubles like this have led people to believe, you know, there is no God. Or, there's at least no way to Him. Or at best, well, there are multiple ways to God. It's led people to question, can truth even be known? Can we really know God at all? And is there such a thing as eternal life? Or do we just die and, and that's it? We return to dust. Now that's one of the ways that we can respond to difficult times. But the other is to believe that there is a way. That there is a truth. That there is life. And that leads us to joy. It leads us to peace and believing. Today we're going to look at Jesus' statement, I am the way and the truth and the life. And as I was preparing this message, I was just overwhelmed by the situation. Here, he's offering this truth, which we focus a lot on the exclusivity that it brings. But he's, he's offering this to his disciples as a means of comfort. I want you to understand how much the disciples were troubled. Jesus had just predicted for the third time that he was going to die. And after three days that he would rise again. He had just identified his betrayer to Peter and to John. And as we will read, he's about to tell them that he's going to go where they cannot even come. And that Peter, the most zealous, the most ardent of the disciples, the one that seemed to have this uncrushable faith, was going to deny him three times that very night. And all of this is combined with this increasing realization that Jesus was not the Christ that they had expected. They had expected this great political leader who would lead them to victory over the Roman Empire and establish himself as king over Israel. 
They were expecting this great political man, this king, who would cause them to reign. He would restore Israel again. But what they had was Jesus. This amazing man, this mysterious man, but this man who said he was going to die. How could this be? Is this the great Messiah that we are to expect? Is this the supposed Christ who's going to lay down his life? My friends, the disciples were very troubled. For three years they had followed this man, and now everything seemed to be shattered. But here in this context, Jesus, he begins his farewell address, and he offers them consolation. And the first consolation he gives is, I am the way and the truth and the life. You see, this claim of exclusivity is also a great promise of comfort. That those whose hearts are troubled can be comforted in him. So with that, we're going to read the context. We're going to begin in chapter 13, verse 31. And we're going to read from 14, 14. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said to him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can we not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How then can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whenever you ask in my name, this I will do. And the Father, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The first assurance that Jesus gives us is that he is the way. You know, when times are hard and our circumstances seem overwhelming, it's really easy for us to lose focus. We forget about our mission. We disregard our purpose. We lose sight of the vision that we once held to so ardently. We can fall into doubt, fall into discouragement, into inactivity or apathy. Or self-absorption. That's, why Je- that's, that's where Jesus found his disciples. That's where they found themselves. The shock of the news that he's get about, about to depart was rocking their faith. And they didn't know what to do about it. And they were forgetting what it was that caused them to lead everything and to follow Jesus Christ. They'd forgotten what John the Baptist had said. That here is the Son of God. Who come, who's coming into the world to save us from our sins. They forgot that this was the Messiah, the Son of God. In that moment, all the miracles, all the healings, all the sermons, all the promises, all the predictions, all the resurrections, none of them mattered at that time because they couldn't look beyond their present circumstances. Their troubles had overwhelmed all of that that they had seen for three years. And despite the countless ways that Jesus had proven himself to be the Son of God, they doubted. They were discouraged and they became dismayed. However subtly, they had lost their focus on the truth. And they'd placed their hope in lesser things. Peter said, If you are the Son of God, then glorify us now. Thomas had said, if you are the Christ, then show us the way. Philip said, if you are the Son, then show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. That'll be enough for us. That's all we need. And they were correct in believing that God could indeed do those things, if He so choose. But they were wrong in demanding that Christ validate it, that He prove it to them. You know, if our approach to Christ is one of barter, one of exchange, if we come with demands, imploring God to validate Himself in relieving us of our present troubles, it won't be enough. It'll never be enough. The reality is that's not contentment. That's not a commitment to God. That's not trust. That's not true, soul-satisfied-in-Christ-alone belief. That's trying to live with Jesus and something else. But Jesus gently calls them back. He calls them away from their present troubles to an unchanging, eternal, and hope-giving truth. In verse 1, He says, Believe in God. Believe also in Me. He says, you have believed in God. Well, persevere in believing God. 
He says, you have trusted in me. Continue to trust me. You may not be able to see the significance of your current circumstances, but trust me. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to God's purpose in Christ. Remember why it is you began to follow me. Remember your purpose. Remember your mission. Remember your call. Remember your vision of this eternal, unchanging hope. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verses 2 and 3, he reminds them of this eternal hope, this reason their hearts should not be troubled. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. And this place will be there, secure, because I have gone and prepared it. And when I am finished, I will come again and I will take you so that you will be there with me. I'm the way to get there. Because you know me, you know this way to this hope. And that's more than you could ever ask for. But Thomas' question in verse 5 shows that he still can't see beyond his present circumstances. He says, how can we know the way if we don't know where we're going? Yet Jesus had just identified both. The destination is a restored, intimate, eternal relationship with God. To live with God in His house forever. The way is Jesus, the one who prepares the place and comes and guides them to it. So Jesus comforts Thomas by answering his question explicitly in verse 6, where he says, I'm the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way to God. I'm the only way to heaven. The only way of true and lasting hope. It is through this sacrifice, through my death, burial, and resurrection, that you can have true hope. And so this present trouble that the disciples were experiencing was absolutely necessary. It was necessary that Jesus leave them and go to the Father. But they couldn't see it at the time. This present trouble was necessary to solidify the hope of heaven, but also to bring them to a place of true and abiding faith in Jesus. The disciples had to face this trouble because through the trouble, Jesus gained victory over sin and death in order to give them this undying hope. But also, they had to face this trouble to lead them to a place of total dependence and trust in Christ. Do you realize that that's the point of trouble? They had to lay down their expectations. They had to look beyond their present circumstances. They had to believe that Jesus was indeed the only way their salvation. So where are you today with this? You know, we live in a world that wants to take hope in Jesus not being the way, or at least being one way of many. We live in a world that will do anything 
it can to avoid trouble, affliction, and trial. A world that is quick to realize that life ought not be this way. It shouldn't be like this. But they insistently refuse to accept why it is the world is this way. But when we're in Christ, we know why there's trouble in the world. We know why the world is the way that it is. Don't we? It's because of sin. It's because of our rebellion against God. The reason why there's pain, the reason why there's suffering, the reason why trouble exists is because we continue to live in rebellion to God. From Adam and Eve to the present day, mankind has rejected God and sought to live life apart from Him. And unless we get this, unless we truly understand our sinful state, then by, na- that by nature we reject God, we will not consider this a comfort that Jesus is the way. If we do not realize that the reason why we experience trouble is because sin has entered the world, then the Savior of the world is of no comfort to us. When we realize that we are sinners and in need to be saved, that we need to be saved from the just wrath of God, and we acknowledge that we are utterly helpless in and of ourselves to provide our own salvation, then Jesus as the way is now the most comforting, the most wonderful, the most assuring consolation that we could ever receive. Believing that Jesus in the, is the way leads us to say like Peter, that in this you rejoice. That now, for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, it changes the entire perspective of trouble when we realize what a comfort it is that Jesus is the way of saving us from this trouble. It might not be immediate. In fact, we might, we'll we'll experience trouble for our entire lives. But yet we have hope that this is not the end. We can rejoice in the midst of trouble because Jesus is the way of our salvation. And trials can only serve to purify that faith that Jesus is the only way to save our souls. But not only does Jesus comfort us by saying, I am the way, but he also affirms this truth by saying that he indeed is the truth. And again, truth is subject to much speculation in our society. Our culture says, who can know the truth? They think that the idea of absolute truth is just arrogant. No one can truly know. There's only relative truth. Subjects that we can personally deem true or false based upon what we choose. Key phrases, well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. They may be what you believe, but that's not what I believe. Something is then true only if they choose to believe that it's true. 
So in other words, there is no absolute knowledge apart from subjective opinions. So if you believe, that's okay. But if you don't believe, that's okay. I mean, how many times have we heard something along this line as we've interacted with people in our culture? The funny thing is, the slightest bit of observation proves that this is not true. I mean, truth is not arbitrary. Truth has meaning. Our words have meaning. As I'm standing here and I'm, I'm talking to you guys, I'm trying to get a point across. Maybe I'm doing it unclearly, or maybe you're choosing to, to uh, take what you want and leave the rest, but I have an intention that I'm trying to put forward, and that can be understood. Truth is not arbitrary. Truth is not subjective. Truth is not relative. It can be communicated. For example, I can't see gravity, and I can choose until the day I die to not believe that it exists because I can't see it. But that's really not going to work for me. I mean, just because I don't believe in gravity, I choose not to believe in gravity, doesn't mean that I'm not bound by it. It doesn't mean that I go floating off into space just because I choose not to believe. I can't climb up on the top of this hotel and say, hey, I don't believe in gravity, so I'm going to fly, watch me, and jump off, and things are going to be okay. The reality is, whether I believe, choose to believe or not, I'm bound by it. I'm held accountable to gravity. And it's the same way with Christ. I mean, we can choose to not believe in Christ. We can choose to not believe in truth, but that doesn't make it any less true. That doesn't make us any less accountable to Christ. In fact, it makes us more accountable. And Jesus says here, not only is there absolute truth, but he says that he is the truth. He is the truth. D.A. Carson in his commentary on this passage says that Jesus is the truth because He embodies the supreme revelation of God. He Himself narrates God, says and does exclusively what the Father gives Him to say and do. Indeed, He is properly called God. He is gracious. He is is God's gracious self-disclosure. His Word made flesh. In verse 1, Jesus ties this command to believe in God with a command to trust in Himself. These are virtually synonymous. He, he ties them together saying that to have personal relational trust in God is to have personal relational trust in Me. It's all the same language. In verse 7, Jesus says, Knowing Me is knowing the Father. That seeing Me is seeing the Father. He says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And I'm amazed by the confidence that he has there. He says, from now on, you know God and have seen him because you have known and seen me. Therefore, Philip's question in verse 8 must have really disappointed Christ. Jesus had just said, if you, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the Father of one. Yet Philip asked to be shown the Father. For him, Jesus was not enough. Philip was looking for that miraculous display of God's majesty, that Shekinah glory, that earth-shaking, illuminating, awe-inspiring, fear-encompassing image that, that Moses and Ezekiel and Isaiah saw. 
Isaiah gave his, gave his account in Isaiah chapter 6 where he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. You know, Philip was longing for this same radiant earth-shaking, awesome display of God's glory. For him, he thought, that would be enough. If I just saw that, that would be enough. And what he got was Jesus. What he was mistaken about was the image of God's glory that he beheld was far greater than what Isaiah saw. In fact, John refers to Isaiah 6 back in chapter 12. He refers to this awesome display of the glory of God. And do you know what he said? Does anyone recall what he said? He said that Isaiah said these things because he saw God's glory and spoke of Jesus. That radiant illuminating figure that sat upon that throne whose train filled the temple was Jesus. As John looked, reflected on what Isaiah had said, he realized, he understood this truth, that there is no greater revelation of God than Jesus Christ. The greatest sight that we could ever behold is the glorious face of Jesus. Therefore, with all confidence, Jesus can absolutely say in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Rhetorically, he gives three reasons why he could say this in verse 10. He says, do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus is saying that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You have seen the Father because we are inseparably united. Second, he says, I don't speak on my own authority. Instead, I speak on my Father's authority. And third, he says, but the Father who dwells in me does His work. My works are done by my Father who dwells in me. And then he says, if nothing else, at least believe because of the works themselves. You've seen all these miracles. That ought to be enough to validate that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That seeing me is seeing the Father. Then in the rest of chapter 14, we didn't look at it, but Jesus gives another reason for the confidence that we can have that He is the truth and that He will send His Helper, the Spirit of truth. Jesus says that, that the world cannot receive the Spirit because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. That's kind of ironic based upon we just talked about our culture saying if we don't see it, we don't believe it. Or how can we know truth? He says, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. It is the spirit who will teach you all things and to bring, bring your remembrance all the truth that I have said to you. And that day you will know when you receive the Holy Spirit, this spirit of truth who lives in you. The Spirit 
brings a knowledge of the truth. And without truth, there is no knowledge. And then in verse 24, Jesus says, You can believe me, because the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So my friends, take heart. There is an absolute truth. A truth that surpasses our present troubles. And it has been revealed most fully, most clearly, in the one who is the truth. In Jesus Christ. And then the third assurance that Jesus gives us is that He is the life. You know, in chapter 13, verse 36, Jesus promised that that His disciples could not follow Him immediately, but they would indeed come afterward. And we've just looked at at chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, where upon His departure, He would go and prepare a place for them in heaven and would return again to take them to where He was. He guarantees them that on the basis of His work, they would assuredly have eternal life. Because of what He has done, they are guaranteed a place in heaven. They are assured of their reconciliation to God. And they, have, and they can be confident that He would absolutely return for them. Because of who He is and what He has done, they have been guaranteed eternal life. So regardless of what happens to them in this life, death has no sting. Because Jesus has secured eternal life to all who believe in Him. Through His life, through His death, through His resurrection, we are guaranteed that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace by which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So peace and joy are ours because all who are trusting in Christ for their salvation have been reconciled to God permanently. But the person and work of Christ not only leads to life eternally restored to God, it also changes the life we have here and now. It transforms our lives. When Jesus said in 13, uh, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, that because He goes to the Father, He can then give them a new command, that they love one another. And by this, all people will know that they are His disciples if they have love for one another. But we know that this is not a new command. We know that in Leviticus 19, we've already been told that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is not a new command. What makes it new is that now, because of Jesus' work, we can now obey it. We can actually live it out. The work of Christ now enables us to obey this command in such a way that it reflects the love between the Father and the Son. It reflects the way Jesus had loved His disciples, the way that He loves us. Our hearts and minds are so changed that we can love one another in such a way that it reveals the work of Christ in us, that we are truly His disciples. So then in verses 12 and 14, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask for in my name, I will do this, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. For those who have life in Christ, they will do greater works because because Jesus has gone to the Father. Their message will impart new lives in others. They will be able to continue Christ's mission, which results in the expansion of God's kingdom. They will see lives and cultures and societies transformed because of the Holy Spirit's work through them. I mean, this is an amazing thing. We have this privilege, you and I, sinners like us, completely undeserving, completely weak, completely helpless, at, at times completely overcome by our present troubles. He offers us this promise that we can do greater works because Christ is with the Father. Because of His completed work, our lives are so changed that we can be instruments to continue His mission. (laughs) This is amazing. And also because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, He now intercedes for us. Therefore, we can pray to the Father in Christ's name according to God's will, And Christ will do it so that God is glorified and so that his people receive joy. Then in verse 15, 21, 23 and 24, Jesus says that those who love him will now be able to obey his commandments. And this is not based upon their personal efforts. This is based upon the completed work of Christ. Because of what Christ has done in our response to love, because of his completed work working through us, we can now obey his commands. And Jesus' departure results in peace in the midst of troubles and is the means of instilling faith within us. Look at verses 27 and 29. He says, My peace I I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus' completed work accomplishes faith and draws us in love to Christ. It gives us peace and comfort and fearlessness in the midst of our trouble. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection results in our joy. So it's ironic that there are many who believe that If we really want peace on this earth, we just need to give up religion. There are a number that hold to that. Well, if the Crusaders had only given up Catholicism, if the Arisians had given up Hinduism, if the jihadists would just forsake Islam, if Christians such as the Nazis would just depart from from Christianity altogether, there would be no war, there would be no murder, there would be no death, there would be no genocide. They honestly believe that. But I kind of want to ask them, well, what about all the atheist tyrants that existed? What about Stalin? What about Mayo? What about Pol Pot? I mean, these three alone 
resulted in the deaths of countless millions? The answer is not putting religion aside. It's not giving up on the idea of faith. It's putting faith in the right thing. If we want peace, it's not going to be because we choose to believe in whatever, but because we choose to believe in Him who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life. He promises us in this passage that peace. One day, the world will be reconciled to God. Those who have placed their trust in Jesus will enjoy perfect peace with God for all eternity. But those who have rejected the way, the truth, and the life will forever be condemned to hell, a place of continual and perpetual trouble and torment. Until then, we're going to live in a place of trouble. We are still going to be exposed to the effects of sin, from the trials and temptations that come along with being in the flesh, from the temptations and lies that that Satan would, would try to deceive us with. So we're going to experience trouble. We will feel pain. We will face trials and tribulations. And we will, unless Christ should return, we will die. Yet, because we have life in Christ, we have peace. And because Jesus is the way, because Jesus is the truth, because Jesus is the life, we are to let not our hearts be troubled. Jesus comforts Jesus comfort his disciples in verses 1 and verse 27 by saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. His consolation to them is that they believe in Jesus. Believe that he is the way and the truth and the life. He promises that he will not leave us as orphans, but he will send his Holy Spirit to all who believe in him. He will not leave us nor forsake us. Therefore, we need not fear or be dismayed. He offers His peace to us. We can have confidence in this because in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 13, Jesus tells us that He's been glorified. Not just in His exaltation as He is now seated at the right hand of God, but Jesus was speaking of His immediate glorification. The glorification that will result in the glory of God. He's not speaking of his resurrection and ascension. He's speaking of his death. The glorification that Jesus is talking about is on the cross. God's splendor is displayed in the perfect obedience of the Son's sacrifice. And you see, this is significant for us. When we think about the pain when we think about the afflictions, the difficulties, the hardships that we endured, we need to reflect upon the cross. Because Jesus was troubled so that we might not be. Jesus was afflicted so that we would not be overcome. Jesus faced intense pain, death, everything that we could dread in this life so that we would have the hope that this would not be the end for us. That's what that gained for us. Jesus was troubled so that we might not.
Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. By his wound, um, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. So we need not fear, though the earth give way, and though the mountains should fall into the heart of the sea, because Jesus is our refuge and our strength. But to do that, we've got to move beyond our personal hopes and expectations to desire what God desires. We have to look beyond our present circumstances and hold fast to Him who is the way and the truth and the life. You know, Thomas Akempis said it well in his imitation of Christ. Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, and the never-ending life. I am the straightest way. The sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. So friends, let us hope in him. Let us place our trust in the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And by so doing, we will have peace in the midst of our troubles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that you have sent your Son for us so that we might know and behold the glory of the cross, that we might see it as a beautiful and wonderful thing, a great comfort to us that though we may face present trials and circumstances, difficulties, afflictions, intense pain, the loss of, of, of temporary hopes and dreams, that we have something far greater, something that is unshakable, something that is sure and is based upon the completed work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that this truth might take such deep root in our hearts that we we love it. That we might be willing to lay down our lives for it that it might be our sole means of comfort, that we wouldn't find it in the things of this world, but in our utter dependence upon you. And God, we know that that truth, that wonderful blessing is not limited, that you offer it freely to all. And so based upon this great gift that we've received, God, I pray that you make us passionate about sharing it with others. for the glory of the cross that you might be magnified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.